Well, we continue to make our way through the Psalms, and they're not getting any easier, as you can see. But this Psalm does have much to instruct us on, especially as we think about the world we live in. So I would invite you to turn there. We'll try to make our way quickly through the Psalm this morning and then uh, make some comments about some of the themes that are here in the Psalm. So we'll take a little bit different of a course in moving a bit more rapidly. It's a given that we live in a violent and unjust world. That's just easy and sort of objective when we look at the world we're in. Innocent people are harmed, tragic losses occur, bad things happen, evil people get away with evil actions. That is the world we live in. We can hide from it, we can ignore it, but the fact is the world we live in is broken. It has gone off the rails. It is a world, as the Bible sees it, crushed under the weight of sin. While it was created and pronounced good by God, all of it, it has been corrupted. And as a result, it is in desperate need of repair. All of creation, me, you, all of nature is in desperate need of repair. This is what we sometimes call redemption. That is what the world needs. It needs to be redeemed. Now, like many of the preceding psalms, and we've had a few weeks now to look at some of these early psalms, this psalm tells us about the justice and righteousness of the Lord. As I've tried to show you as we go through the psalms, we're not talking about humans, we're not talking about life advice. Primarily what we're confronted with every time we open Scripture is who God is. And so here we can extract this very simple statement about God's character, simple in the sense that we can say it simply, but we'll have to spend a great deal of time thinking about it, and that is the Lord is a righteous judge. And because he is a righteous judge, we can be confident that he will right every wrong, that this world will be repaired, that it will be restored, that it will be redeemed. He will redeem corrupt creation. All of it. Every aspect of it. And this psalm tells us just that, that it is in the character of God to do so. And while his righteousness and his justice are things that we might tend to avoid or not talk about, as we've done over the last few weeks, we've talked about similar topics, and we've talked about his anger, we've talked about his severity, we've talked about all of these things. Again, like those topics, righteousness and justice might be things we would rather not talk about, but hopefully by the end you will be able to see the comfort that we have in knowing that God's character is righteous and just. And the psalm doesn't just tell us about God's character, but it also calls upon us to respond to God's character. It calls upon us to repent because there is great urgency when we are thinking about who God is as a righteous and just God. So this psalm calls on us to repent and turn to Him, offering Him praise and glory for His perfect character. So let's go ahead and jump into it, beginning in verse 1. In verse 1, David writes, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. 
Like so many of the Psalms, David begins with a request for deliverance. But notice what else he says here. He says, in you, O Lord my God, I take refuge. So this is the only place, as we're going to see throughout the entirety of the psalm, that David has any hope. It's the only place that you and I have any hope as we look around a world that is crushed under the weight of sin, that is corrupt, where bad things happen. O Lord, in you and you alone do I take refuge. I didn't point this out at the beginning, but remember I pointed out in the past that the headings... That, that part where you see uh, Shigeon of David, right? Which, who knows what that is? We don't know. Um, which he sang to the Lord. I didn't point this out, but these are part of the text, as I said before. I just want, to, want you to note, notice this is a song to be sung to the Lord. And so while it is, as Jeannie said, a lament, while it is sort of disturbing as we read through it, while it is very visceral in the feeling of it, this is something that David sang to the Lord. He sings to the Lord. And he begins by saying, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. And why does he need refuge? Because people are after him. They're pursuing him. Verse 2. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Look at David's situation. He compares his enemies to, to lions. They're going to rip him apart. He has nowhere to go. He says, there is no deliverance with none to deliver me. He has nowhere to go. He's going to be torn apart. And he recognizes that apart from God's deliverance, there is nowhere to turn. Right? That's still assumed because he began by saying, in you do I take refuge. But he's saying, everywhere else will fail me. Anywhere else I run, anywhere else I look for help will fail me. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I have. In trying to answer some of the questions about this world, these existential questions of why we're here and what it means to be human and where we're going, you might have started searching for answers. And most of the time those answers come up wanting because as David says here, there is nowhere else to turn. There is nowhere else that will actually deliver you from the problems of the world. Sure, you can hide from it. I was having a conversation uh, a couple of months ago about these very things. And, and the response from this particular person was, well, the best thing you can do is just recognize that it all is meaningless and there is no meaning. Well, that's one option. And, and that's been a deeply philosophical position that's been spelled out by very intelligent people over the years. Great philosophers have said the best we can do is just realize there's nothing, no, no meaning. There's nothing here. You can turn to other religions and see if there's some answer there. The Eastern religions will teach you that there's a divine spark in you. And by the way, this is very common in our world right now under the influence of Eastern religions. There's this divine spark in you and what you need to do is cultivate that and then you'll be happy and peaceful and serene in this world. But what I've found is those two will let you down. Yeah, you might find some happiness and peace and serenity, but how do you answer the ultimate questions of your eternal destiny? How do you answer the questions of where you came from? How do you answer the questions of where you're going? You see, all of these things are lacking answers, but Christianity stands out. It's not just another religion. Christianity says there's a God who created this world and that God intends to redeem this world because of his righteous and just character. 
Now these next verses, as we get into three and following, are going to require some care so we don't miss David's point. David's going to appeal to his innocence. And what I don't want you walking out of here thinking is that Christianity teaches if your behavior is right, then God will be satisfied with you. It's not Christianity. I know we've heard it before. I know people pass it off as Christianity. I know people sometimes say, follow the Ten Commandments and you'll be okay. But what I hope to show you at the end of this is that the only thing following rules, especially the rules that the Bible can do, is condemn you. The only thing that the rules of Scripture gives us is condemnation. And what we learn from putting ourselves up against the law, like the Ten Commandments even, is that we need a Redeemer, that we need a Savior to save us from our corruption, to save us from this world that we're in, like David is talking about here. Later, David's going to talk about his righteousness, and I'll say more about that when we get there. But I want you to keep all of this in context. When David appeals to his innocence, or when he appeals to his righteousness, the emphasis isn't on his behavior. Okay, the emphasis isn't on his behavior. The emphasis is on God's character. Emphasis isn't on David's behavior, it's on God's character. And what I mean is this. When David says, look at my innocence or look at my righteousness, he's appealing to a God who is righteous and just. This entire psalm is about the justice and righteousness of God. It's not really about David doing good things. Okay, and I'm going to show you that as we go. But let's, let's look at verses 3 through 5. Oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. So there's several conditional statements, right? If I've done wrong, then let this happen. Verse 5. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now he's appealing to God's character here. He's saying, if I've done wrong, Lord, you are good and you are just and you are righteous. And, and while I, I'm being pursued wrongfully, if, if for some reason I actually am being pursued rightfully, if my enemies are out to get me with cause, then Lord, you have every right to act consistent with your character and to release your hand of protection from me. Lord, if I'm in the wrong, take your hand of protection away from me. That's what he said. It's all an appeal to God's character. He's, he, he's saying, Lord, in this context, I'm being pursued wrongfully. My enemies are out to get me without cause. And so he's asking God to do what God does in consistency with his character. He's asking God to deliver him because David hasn't done anything wrong under these circumstances. So all of it is this appeal to who God is. He knows the Lord won't act contrary to the Lord's character. That's one of the comforting things about the righteousness and justice of God. While, while it sounds severe and it sounds harsh, the comforting fact is that God being righteous and just means he will always do what is right. He will always do what is good. And then David petitions the Lord to set the wrongs right. Verses 6 and 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assemblies of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. Again, he's asking God to act in a manner 
consistent with God's righteous character. Rise, Lord. Do something about this. Do something about my enemies. They're pursuing me wrongfully. He's already said, Lord, if I'm in the wrong, then act righteously. But now he's turned his attention to say, Lord, since I feel that I'm being pursued wrongfully, I need you to deliver me. Verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And here is where we have to be careful. Remember, this is a specific situation. David's not talking about his righteousness in the sense that he's righteous before God. David isn't merely relying on his good behavior. In fact, I think this is a really helpful phrase. One writer refers to this as a relative or a comparative righteousness. And what he's saying is in this specific situation, I am in the right. My enemies are in the wrong. They're pursuing me wrongfully. And I think that's extremely helpful here. David is referring to his rightness, his innocence in this present situation. He's not talking about his eternal righteousness before God. He's not talking about working his way to please God or to make himself right with God. He knows the Lord is his true righteousness. Do you remember that from Psalm 4, 1? In Psalm 4, 1, David cries out. He says, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. He knows where his righteousness comes from. David's not mistaken about that. He knows the Lord is his true righteousness. But here is a specific situation. And David is asking for deliverance because he feels that he has been wronged. Furthermore, righteousness and wickedness in the Psalms do not primarily concern some arbitrary behaviors. This is true of Scripture too, I think. Remember Psalms 1 and 2? I'll just show it to you from there. In Psalms 1 and 2, the contrast is between the righteous and the wicked. And remember I said those two psalms are the introduction to all 150 psalms of the Psalter. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous are those who embrace the Lord by trusting Him. Okay, by relying on Him. By embracing Him. By fearing Him. Okay, trusting Him. What we call faith. The wicked are those who openly rebel against the Lord by rejecting Him. Okay, we see that in Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who doesn't follow the way of the wicked, but instead he meditates, remember that word, meditates on the law of the Lord day, day and night. And then when we come to Psalm 2, we're told that the peoples have gathered together and they meditate on rebelling against God. Same word. So there's that contrast. The contrast is between those who fear the Lord and those who rebel against the Lord or think nothing of the Lord, which is a form of rebellion. So the righteous in Scripture are those who embrace Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, the Lord. Remember in Psalm 2, the wicked are the ones who reject the Lord and His Christ or His Messiah. The wicked are those who reject the Lordship of Jesus. So to be completely clear here, there might be a very nice person who does many charitable things and yet they reject Jesus. Under the guidelines of Scripture, that person would not be considered righteous. We're talking about something else. Okay? Righteousness is not a matter of the arbitrary behaviors. Righteousness is how is one, how is one responding to Jesus, the one appointed by God to redeem the world. 
In verse 9, David prays for something that we can all sympathize with. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. Remember what we've talked about there. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. And we all desire the end of evil. Have you ever had the experience of watching the news or hearing some story? And maybe this is unique to my job because as a pastor, people like to bring the worst things they've ever heard to me and then just tell me about them and leave and let me deal with them. Um, and, and it may be completely unrelated to anything in my world, but it's just, here you go, pastor. Here's something awful for you to think about for the rest of the day. But we're constantly bombarded by those things as well. I mean, our world is like that. Every news cycle, every website you go to, unless you're on the Good News Network or something like that, every single one is about the worst things that we can find. And when we read those things, we have this experience, or at least I feel it, that we desire the end of evil. We want justice. We want the world to be righted. And we're not talking about just revenge. We're not saying, I just want to destroy someone. Although that sometimes comes out of us too because we're human and our righteousness is far from perfect. It's far from good. We would be dangerous if we were given the judge's gavel. If we were put in the judgment seat to sit and judge everybody in all creation, we would not be the proper people to do it. But that again is why we find comfort in the fact that it is God who does this. We all desire the end of evil. And so he asked the Lord to end evil. And then he asked the Lord to establish, to, to fix, to keep them from moving the righteous. And then, once more, he says this is all rooted in the character of the Lord. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. So remember who the righteous are, the ones who love and fear the Lord. The minds and the hearts, it's something we can't see. But the Lord sees through that and he judges rightly. In fact, notice when we get to verse 11 that there's this repetition, by the way, of appealing to God's righteousness. Look at the next two verses, starting at verse 10. My shield us with God who saves the upright in heart. Okay, again, those who trust him. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge. There's his character highlighted once more for us. And a God who feels indignation every day. Now, why does he feel indignation? Because if you and I can look at the world and say, man, things need to be righted. Things aren't the way they should be. There's awful stuff happening and our sense of justice is aroused. Then a perfect God who is holy and righteous and just is certainly aroused to justice and to righteousness. His indignation is felt every day because he is good. Okay, this isn't some malevolent being who's out to crush the wicked. If that were the case, the world wouldn't be here. The world would have already gone off the rails. God is a righteous judge. And this is the primary point of the psalm, that God is a righteous judge. Now, an unrighteous judge is conceivable. I've already mentioned that. That would be a horrible thing. Imagine going to court and the judge refused to govern according to the law and applied all sorts of false evidence to your case. It's not a righteous judge at all. That would be an unrighteous judge. And no doubt, as I said before, human, being, whether, human beings, whether we're actual judges or not, are often unrighteous in our determinations. 
Can, I don't know that any of us actually works in the capacity of a judge, but we all judge on a daily basis, and we are seldom righteous in those judgments. But the Lord is a righteous judge. His character is never in question. He always does what is good and right. And because that is the character of God, the next verses remind us that when we talk about our response to God, we are talking about a serious matter. In these verses, we're struck with the urgency of repentance. Look at verses 12 and 13. If a man, and this is generic man, as in if a person, if a person does not repent, God will wet his sword. He'll sharpen it. And he has bent and readied his bow. So he's drawled back the string. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. Here we see that the righteous judge is also a fierce warrior. The God of the Bible is a warrior who strikes terror into the hearts of those who oppose him. And we see this in the Old Testament. I know sometimes we read the Old Testament and we see God's severity on display. We see him being a warrior on behalf of Israel as he sets Israel free from slavery in Egypt. As he clears the land of all the peoples who had occupied it and who were in open rebellion against the one true God. But as we move even into the New Testament, we see that the God is a warrior warrior in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we read in Colossians 1 that he disarmed the powers of hell, that he destroyed them by his cross, and he triumphs over them and parades them out in a victory parade, just like the Roman emperors of his day would have done. See, our God is a warrior, and it's important that he is, because for God to be just and righteous, he must also have the power to execute that righteousness and judgment in our world. And that's exactly the God we're talking about when we come to Scripture. That's exactly the God we find in Jesus Christ, who is not just dealing with the things we see. We talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning. But is also dealing with things that we cannot see, spiritual powers and authorities and principalities in the unseen places. We read all about those in the New Testament. Notice how the wicked person is described in the next few verses, starting in verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. See, ultimately, the wicked person will not get away with their behavior. Ultimately, there is a reckoning. All things are open and visible to the Lord. Nothing can ultimately be hidden. And the actions of those who oppose him are like those who set a trap for themselves. They will eventually fall into it. And once more, all of this is founded in the good, righteous character of God. Verse 17, last verse. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Notice what David says. So for 16 verses, he's been asking for deliverance, and he's talked about the Lord's severity and his righteousness. And now he says, I will give thanks due to his righteousness. 
The King James Version is probably better here. I will praise the Lord according to, do works I guess, but according to his righteousness. In other words, the standard for the praise is God's righteousness. The whole reason for praising God is because of his character. God's character necessitates praise. His righteousness should prompt praise. That's the whole point. Now, I've tried to work pretty rapidly through this psalm. It's a lengthy psalm so that we can say just a few final things about the righteous character of the Lord. The themes of righteousness and justice go together throughout Scripture. The Puritan writer Stephen Sharnick called the righteousness and justice of the Lord the engines of divine dignity which render him glorious and majestic. Again, we don't tend to think about God's righteousness and justice as something that makes someone majestic and, and glorious. But Sharnik's on to something. So, for example, we read in Psalm 97, verse 2, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, the foundation of his throne. He governs from this position of perfect righteousness and justice. Or this great promise in Isaiah 1, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed. How? By justice, and those in her who repent, how? By righteousness. The Lord's justice and righteousness. Again, Isaiah 5, 16, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. He, he shows himself to be glorious in justice, right? He's praised because he's just. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. How does God display his holiness and his glory? Through justice and righteousness. This is how we see the greatness and goodness of God. Plenty of other examples are found in Scripture. The point is that we see the character of God illustrated in these terms, righteousness and justice. Yet, I'm afraid, as I've said, that we don't do as verse 17 describes and praise the Lord for these aspects of His character. But we should. And let me say two things about God's righteous judgment that should prompt us to meditate on his righteousness and justice with a view to praise him and sing to him. First, God's righteous judgment gives us hope for the future. God's righteous judgment gives us hope for the future. Okay, the hope for our, the whole basis for our hope in the future is because God is righteous and just. And those of you who are grieving, those of you who have had bad things happen in your life, whether to you or you've experienced them, your hope is still there because there is a good and righteous God who governs the world. If you take that away, there is no hope. I would agree completely with you. When we look at the horrible things that have happened in history, the horrible things that happen to people, as soon as you take a righteous and just God away, there's no hope that any of that will ever be rectified or set right. There's no hope. I mean, how, how could it? Those people who do evil things... They get away with it. There's no justice that's ever claimed. As Sharnick noted, if God were unable to exercise authority over violations of his laws, God would not be in control. He wouldn't be sovereign. In fact, the whole world would simply slide into total chaos. It would. Even now, the Lord, by his justice and his righteousness, holds the world together. There are things he has given us that without a God just don't make sense. He has given us a sense of right and wrong. If there's not a God out there, where do those things come from? 
He's given us a sense of right and wrong so that we don't turn into just total chaos. Can you imagine if none of us had a sense of right and wrong? But yet, talk to anyone. It doesn't matter if they believe in God or what God they believe in. They will appeal to a sense of right and wrong. As soon as you cheat them, as soon as you violate their space, there is this appeal to something that is bigger than us. But if there's no God and we're just a bunch of molecules sort of floating around that by random chance happen to be here, how in the world can you appeal to any right or wrong? The best thing we could do is step on each other and move forward as quickly as possible. That's the logical outcome. God has also given us laws, both natural and judicial. Yes, they're man-made, but in God's wisdom and by God's revelation and Scripture, those laws have come to be. There are natural laws like gravity and things like that that keep us from doing whatever we want. And then there are the judicial laws that govern society. And God has given us, as Scripture tells us, civil officials to govern and execute justice. Without these things, our world would just be total chaos. These are all expressions of how God governs the world. Then there are instances in Scripture of God's judgment within history and within time. We see this in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And in Egypt when they are judged in the book of Exodus. In the New Testament, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem as a sign of judgment. And that happened in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. But then there is a final judgment when all wrongs will be righted. One writer says God's righteousness will one day be the broom that sweeps the universe clean. We know the world needs this. And those who know the Lord long for this. That's why we cry, Lord, come. Because we need the world to be righted. Number two, God's righteous judgment calls us to repent. God's righteous judgment calls us to repent. And here I want to share what we call the gospel. Remember that this psalm calls us to repent. The consequences for not repenting are dire. Scripture speaks urgently to us on this point. But understand that repentance is not merely saying sorry. Okay, that's how we tend to think of it. But that's not repentance. Repentance involves turning away from our rebellion and turning to embrace Christ. Turning away from our rebellion and turning to embrace Christ. Anyone can say they're sorry. That's not the idea. Our good works, though, aren't what I'm talking about either. Our good works just won't cut it. God has spoken. He has given us laws. Every single one of us is crushed by that law. Romans 3.20 tells us that the law simply condemns us. Okay, so, so those of us who love to point to the Ten Commandments and say, well, if we just follow these, we'll be okay. It's very clear from Scripture that all those will do is condemn you. Okay, they'll expose you to be a liar, a fraud, all of those things. They'll expose you to be an idolater, and me as well. Against the law, we just don't measure up. It will crush us. Paul makes the same point in Galatians 3. And then he makes this amazing statement. He says, Christ redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law, that curse of the law. That's that condemnation by becoming a curse for us. How did he become a curse for us? He became a curse by being crushed under the weight of sin. By being crushed under the law, being judged under the law, though he was without sin. Christ died so that we would not be crushed under the weight of the law. He has set us free. 
A man came to me one time who was very disturbed by one of those many disturbing passages in the Old Testament. Uh, This disturbing passage was about a man in Numbers 15 who picks up sticks on the Sabbath day and he is subsequently judged and killed for violating the Sabbath law. This man said to me, you know, know, he was retired at this point, but he said, you know, I've worked a lot of Sundays, so I'm guilty. Here's what I told him. You're absolutely right. You are guilty. You are a Sabbath breaker, and you know what? According to this passage, you deserve death. God is a righteous judge after all, and you've broken his law. You have no foot to stand on. But there's good news. Christ died to free you from the condemnation of the law. You must trust Christ and not your self-righteousness or your belief that you haven't offended a holy God or that you've kept the law perfectly. The law condemns you, but the cross can save you. That's the gospel. The appropriate response to this psalm and to the character of God's righteousness is repentance. Now, there's one final piece of practical advice I want to share with you. We should meditate on the righteousness of God. We should meditate on the righteousness of God. I mean, we should think about it and let it get deeply into our minds and hearts because this is his character and it makes him praiseworthy. That's exactly what the final verse of the psalm said. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness. We should bring to mind the perfect character of God. There is no evil in him. There is only perfection. This should also lead us to ponder on how serious breaking his law is. This should cause us to think about how good he is. This should give us hope for the future. And all of these things should be part of our meditation. And then this should lead us to see how sweet and how amazing the gospel is. That you and I are not crushed under the weight of the law. That our righteousness, though it is completely insufficient, is not what God is judging us on, but we are being judged based on the righteousness of Christ. And as we think about God's righteousness and His justice, we can see that in His righteousness and justice, His love for us is shown through his action in Christ Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb. And it is is in that and that alone that we have hope. That's the announcement of the gospel and it calls for repentance and turning to embrace it.